Hi, my name is Nadine and welcome back to In Her Lens, a podcast dedicated to underrepresented perspectives in film and television. We're already streaming our third season and this season is specifically about the place of film and filmmaking and the larger entertainment industry in the fight against climate change. How are we using it as a tool for change, for example? We are already halfway through the season and I'm really curious to hear how you're finding it. So make sure to send me a DM on Instagram at In Her Lens Podcast. Today we are joined by a very special guest and a conversation that I hold close to my heart. Today we are joined by Lauren Waters. Filmmaker Lauren Waters is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Kiowa tribe. Lauren's work centers on environmental knowledge, culture revitalization, and indigenous futurity through storytelling. She's worked on projects such as seasons one through three of Reservation Dogs, Fancy Dance, and The Killers of the Flower Moon, as well as an independent producer and director of several narratives and short documentary projects. She recently received the Native Arts Cultures Foundation Lift Award and, bear with me, the Running Strong Foundation Dream Starter Environmental Justice Award. Now her second documentary, Meet Me at the Creek, premiered at the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival just this past week. Meet Me at the Creek focuses on interconnectedness and Cherokee values through the lifelong fight of Rebecca Jim, a Cherokee Nation citizen and waterkeeper warrior, as she leads the effort to restore Tar Creek in Oklahoma. U.S. officials have designated Tar Creek as irreversibly damaged, but Rebecca refuses to accept that. In this episode, Lauren opens up about her journey as a filmmaker. We talk about her quartet of films, including restoring Neshke Iman and the tribal environmental professionals that this short centers. Lauren tells us about the current realities of indigenous voices in both the filmmaking space and the environmental justice community. She talks about her experiences on set of Killers of a Flower Moon and Reservation Dogs and the making of her latest film, Meet Me at the Creek. So grateful that we all get to share space right now. Here is Lauren Waters on In Her Lens. Okay. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to In Her Lens. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so honored to spend time with you. Um, this season, because of the specificity of the theme, I've designed four questions around the seasons of the year, just as a, like a rapid fire getting to know you a little bit. Um, do you want to answer them? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation and feel really honored that you reached out. So I'm ready. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you. Um, the first question is based on spring. What is the first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning? Oh, um, I unfortunately check my phone. <laughs> it's like the first <laughs> thing that I do when I wake up in the morning. What about you? I also, unfortunately, I'm trying really hard to set better boundaries around my phone and really trying to be like, okay, I'm not going to keep it in the bedroom, things like this, but it's ups and downs. Some days it's going better, some days a little less, but we're, we're human beings. We're learning. We're learning. Uh, the second question, Summer, if you could go to a concert tonight uh, of any artist, past or still alive, who would you go see? Oh man, I've been really into Sade recently and I was just thinking it'd be really cool to go to a Sade concert that's a really good one um autumn are you a coffee or tea person I'm a coffee person and autumn is my favorite season for sure I'm a October baby so everything fall it and the last question, Winter, um, do you have a word or a resounding mantra that you carry with you uh, when the days are a little darker? Yeah, one thing that my best friend from high school used to always say that has really stuck with me is nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. So basically just saying with all the things that have happened in your life, you're exactly where you're supposed to be and everything is happening around you and for you and with you for whatever reason maybe we'll ne we'll probably never know why or what it is but 
it's all supposed to be happening that way. I really needed to hear that tonight. I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I completely stand behind this, uh, this, yeah, belief or mantra or, or, or statement because I do believe that uh, we we are living exactly where we are supposed to, and that there are many things at play that we don't always see or know, and that's okay. Mm -hmm, definitely. Well, thank you so much for answering those questions. Let's hop into getting to know you before we talk about all the work that you do. Um, will you share with us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and where you are at the moment? Yeah, so I, um, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where I currently live. And um, I live on the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation. And I'm a Cherokee Nation and Kiowa tribal citizen uh, filmmaker. And filmmaker definitely encompasses a lot of different things. Um, but we will get into that, I'm sure. And right now, I'm currently in San Jose, California, visiting my dad. And um, so I've been traveling a lot, which has been really fun, and just trying to enjoy uh, every place that I'm at when I'm visiting and making it home how I can. And you're a filmmaker in so many different ways. Do you remember the first film that you ever saw? Do you, is there like a, a movie that is resounding to you as a person from when you were when you were younger oh man first film like one of the early films that really impacted me um yeah. I don't know maybe I don't know first one that comes to mind is like Tarzan I was really into Disney movies mm -hmm. as a kid and um I think I was when I was asleep one time in my sleep I was like singing the soundtrack to Tarzan <laughs> um but yeah, I, I mean, I'm still like really into Disney movies and just love mm -hmm. um, the ability that storytelling has to be able to connect with so many different types of audiences. Um, so yeah, Disney trivia, I got you. Any other types of trivia, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I also like one, I remember the first time I went to a movie a theater very well, I went to go see Finding Nemo. Like that is also something that is just really stuck with me, even though it's, yeah, I mean, obviously an iconic movie for that time, but uh, I just distinctly remember that experience of wa watching that or like what I did before I went there and like things like that. It's always funny, like the movies that for some reason you connect with at such a young age. Yeah, Finding Nemo is really interesting too. It, it, I think the writing in that film is incredible, but they also recently have been doing, um, I think they call it like dubbing where they have actresses, actors from different communities like making it in different languages so um they've recently done a navajo language version of finding nemo and they hired different wow. like navajo actors to to do it and so i thought that was like one of my friends is on it and i thought that was really cool just to you know convert disney classics into different indigenous languages so that the kids can watch it in their own language and learn the, their own language. 100%. I had no idea. That's really cool. I'm going to look into that. I had no idea they were doing that. That's fantastic. No, and I think that that is, especially with animation, like why animation is so interesting in this sector, you know, in terms of connecting story to uh, different cultures, because we can translate it and we can dub it and like we should. And what ways uh, do words differ between languages and how do we navigate that? I always think that as a bilingual person, always so interesting what words do or don't exist in different languages and how we convey certain emotions. Very cool. Um, what was your film education like? What did that look like for you work coming out of the place from I love movies or I'm interested in film to it becoming a career? Yeah, I feel like my film education obviously is still going on, but it's, it's a lifelong journey. That's true. Yeah, for sure. And especially for me, because I was never a person that was super into like a person that just loved movies I, I of course like I enjoyed them and you know went to the movies all the time with my family but it was more so I think the process of making films that I was more attracted to so my mom had a little like handheld camera that she still actually has to this day it's pretty funny but you know those little DVR or those little tapes we would put in and, and film each other doing skits yeah. and things like that growing up and I think that that was what really started me in my career. Um, I guess looking back through everything, I'm like, dang, I always had a camera in my hand or I was always playing around with different things and editing on my computer. And um, so I ended up studying environmental studies and throughout my education and graduated with a degree in that. And it wasn't until after college that I realized that filmmaking 
was something that I wanted to do. And really it came at the intersection of, of indigenous storytelling and environmental issues and filmmaking, which was really an interesting journey, but that's kind of how I got into filmmaking. And then, you know, from there, since I didn't go to film school or have any other experience other than my own personal working on like small sets and things like that. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still growing as a filmmaker and what that means for me. And so I've really just um, tried to learn on my own as much as I can. Yeah. And I think that this is a great, <laughs> you already explained it a little bit, but also why I really wanted to talk to you for this, for this podcast is that you are at that intersection of filmmaking and climate justice. Um, what themes within that intersection specifically are you exploring right now as a director and as a as a filmmaker yeah I think that um as a as a filmmaker I'm exploring the idea of communities taking the power of storytelling and using it to highlight the issues in their community and and that could be you know a range of things especially when we're talking about climate justice but um, specifically, the last film that I directed, or it's called Meet Me at the Creek, and it's about a Cherokee elder who has a vision for this community if the water was clean. And so really, it's it goes beyond trying to clean up, you know, a super fun site, which is a, a polluted site that, um, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency has deemed as extremely toxic, Um it goes beyond something like that. It goes beyond, you know, even just cleaning the water or bringing back this place that, you know, needs revitalization. I think it goes, really goes to like this universal feeling of connecting with a place and caring for a place as well as caring for the people of that place and garnishing and growing our stories. Um, because I feel like, especially in the world we live in today, we're all, you know, kind of living off of where our homelands are or in cities or maybe not as like directly connected to where our people used to be, which is totally okay. I think um, we're in this process of learning how to connect back. What does that look like? And so I think really it's more so connecting back to the place that you're at and how can you create stories for that place and care for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you've made four films, I, if I have done my research correctly, that are kind of like a quartet of sorts that is like a larger project. Will you tell us a little bit about how that got started? Yeah. So when I was in college, I produced two short documentaries that focused on tribal environmental professionals, what we call them, or TEPs for short, people who work for their tribe in the environmental field um, with support that's funded by the EPA through grants. And these uh, two individuals that we did documentaries on were women working in the environment, doing really powerful work for their tribe. And so I kind of, that was like, I guess my first taste into what making a film was like, because I went out and I interviewed them and I transcribed the interviews actually like by hand. I'm like, now I know that there's like websites that can do that wow. for you. Um, <laughs> True dedication. <laughs> I know <laughs> there was another student who was studying filmmaking who actually came in and, and directed the film. So I was just um, a producer on that. And it was, they were a really great learning experience for me. And then from there, after I graduated, I was able to get some funding to make, um, to direct my first short documentary. And um, that one is called Restoring Neshke Iman, which means restoring grandmother earth in Cheyenne. And it follows along the same themes of, um, this tribal man who's working to uh, remediate this old boarding school that closed down in the 80s and it had lead and asbestos in it which was poisoning the kids that went to school there and also just now that it's sitting there he was trying to revitalize it for the community and so um, the fourth one is about Rebecca Jim the elder that I talked about a little bit earlier and so each of the films kind of focuses on a different person in the similar field how they um, take their background and their experience and put that into their work into helping, you know, revitalize their community, clean the environment, yeah. have clean water, things, all kinds of things. 
Yeah, I would love to talk about restoring Neskai Mans um, because it was the best winner of uh, or the winner of the best doc- short documentary at North Dakota Environmental Rights Film Festival. It got an honorable mention at Tallgrass Film Festival. Um, and I do want to talk about the story about the the, the this film and, and your upcoming one um, to really talk about the intersection of indir- uh, indigenous storytelling and climate storytelling and filmmaking in general. Um, so in Oklahoma... Um, there were generations of Native Americans who were educated through the Concho Indian School between 1871 and 1984. And there are all these abandoned school buildings that are completely riddled with toxins and that are still leaching into the community itself. Um, Yeah, you followed uh, Damon Dunbar, who is just, you know, a fantastic environmentalist. Um, How did you start to build a relationship with this film's protagonist? And when did you first meet? And yeah, how do you start to develop? Because documentaries, especially when you're talking about one person and their life's work, it is an intimate connection that you you want to create. Yeah, I was introduced to him through um, just some mutual friends, mutual colleagues uh, that had been helping support his work. And it kind of just felt very serendipitous for me because my cousins are um, Arapaho and they were like citizens of that same tribe that Damon works with. And so I had actually, you know, even though it was far away from Tulsa and in a different part of the state, I had been out there growing up um, a couple times, you know, just spending time with them and um, as a kid going to powwows and, and cultural events out there. And so Whenever the story was brought up um, through a mutual colleague, I it felt it felt like you know I just wanted to connect with Damon and see you know is this is this really something that I should be telling because I think that that is um, in documentary filmmaking you know it can be very extractive um, and you have to be careful in what stories you decide to to take on as a director and whenever I met with Damon and got to know him. Um, We did it over Zoom during the pandemic. And I just knew that it was something that I felt I felt led to to help tell, you know, it's not my story, but I'm definitely, you know, I wanted to try to help tell it as best as I could as authentic as possible. And so, yeah, we just spent time talking. Um, We had several like, conversations over a couple months. And then once we were ready to go, you know, I, you know, the people in the film I had, you know, there's uh, Gordon Yellowman, he's an elder, he speaks in the film, and then Chico Buffalo is also in the film. She's, she doesn't speak, but she's one of the people that Damon works to pass on his knowledge. These people I had just spent time having conversations with. And so um, we went out there and filmed and I think maybe we even have gotten closer after the film, after we've had so many screenings and discussions and all of that, and just have seen how far the film has gone. Um, you know, this is something that when you decide to tell a story about someone, it's it's forever. You know, it's not necessarily something that you should ever be able to step away from. It's a responsibility that you have as a storyteller to to continue to care for that because the the people in the film or the characters or subjects or whatever term you want to use, they that will always be attached to them. Um, and so that's something that I think we need to be cautious of as storytellers. Um, but I don't know if that answered your question, but no, it did. It did. Yeah. It did. Um, the film it really touches on you know physical trauma and historical trauma, and um, how do you navigate working on you know sensitive and prevalent and painful stories, and navigating also your own feelings around that? Yeah. So the film goes through highlighting the history of this boarding school and the United States and other countries as well have had these residential or boarding schools for indigenous people where they would they would remove kids from their communities and put them in schools and force them to speak English and adopt all of these other ways and basically they said like kill the Indian save the man and you know it's really close to home for I would say most, if not all indigenous people, because like my grandparents went through boarding school. And I think the complicated thing here was like some people had good experiences and some people had bad experiences. It's a kind of a mixture of things. So just understanding that it's a nuanced situation and 
with telling such a heavy story, that's like, that's the root of what was going on in this community specifically. Um, but it's not necessarily what we have to end the story on. It's not what we have to dwell on or focus on all the way. It's like, we're as indigenous people, we're so much more than the negative or bad things that have happened to us or even the stereotypes. And so I, you know, really took care trying to get that part of the story together, but um, not, I wanted to move on from it pretty quickly and just being like setting the stage. This is what happened here. These are what the buildings are. And then, you know, they were, they were left there. Um, the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs gave the buildings back to the tribe and said, here, like, do what you need to do with them. But I, you know, the tribe just didn't really have the resources. And so that's when, you know, the, it started, they started dilapidating and, and getting worse and toxic, you know, well, they were already toxic, but the chemicals were just um, getting into the community. And so I really wanted to focus more on Damon's successes and hard work and how he has overcome so many things in his life to get to where he's at and how his determination has, um, has been a success for the community and how he's able to, you know, make so much change and such over such a long period of time with this one project. It was really inspiring to me and just and really just taught me that um, you just got to keep going every single day, one foot after the other and working towards what you believe in. Yeah, I also really took that away from how you made it. Um, it is like a humongous story and you made a short documentary. How do you pare down and focus a film to now it's like, I think it's like 11 minutes. I'm sure you had a ton of content. Yeah, that's always, I think, the biggest challenge whenever you're approaching a subject or just approaching a film or topic is how to get to the root of the story. And even so now, you know, I finished that film two over like two and a half years ago and I think that it could probably even still be pared down because there were so many topics that were touched on but I think it lives as it is for a reason I think that the things that you know we talked about briefly the loss of language we talked about how water is life and how Damon encourages the youth to go and connect with the earth and feel it in their hands and you can't learn what you can learn you can't learn those things in a library basically is what he says um and so I think for me it was a it was a challenge for sure being able to cut everything down to you know an 11 minute video but I really just tried to think about what was the core of the story um because ultimately you know the history of those schools is dense like there's so much there that I didn't put in and I really just want to try to get to the point of like okay, we don't really necessarily need to know all of the little minute details, but just like the overall, like how can that, how can the audience get, take this overall message from it and learn like, okay, this is what happened, but then it be able to move on. Um, so yeah, definitely a challenge. I don't really have advice for being able to do it other than just like following your instinct and, and your gut. Yeah, yeah. And on a more practical note, I think as you know, we talk about this short, but also your upcoming short, um, Meet Me at the Cree. Um, you're working on sites that are toxic, on locations that are toxic. And I saw that also people were wearing masks uh, when inside of the buildings. Um, how did you navigate visiting sites while you're filming that might not be the healthiest? And of course, there are still people that live there or have lived there at the same time. So it's always it's sensitive. Yeah you know out like right across the street from the school and like it's a tiny street so it's literally like you take like 10 steps and you're in someone's yard so mm -hmm. like people live right there um mm -hmm. and are drinking that water every day so yeah it's the same thing in this next film meet me at the creek people go swimming in that creek people go hang out or just like you know live extremely close to the toxic site um for me you know, it is a risk, of course, like going into these places and communities, but it's like a risk I'm willing to take if it's, you know, going to help bring the story to, to light and hopefully make it better um, in that place. And so, yeah, we wore masks. Um, I think that, you know, probably could have worn like even better masks to make sure that we were extra safe. Um, but I think it's just like being really cautious whenever you get home to like 
whenever we filmed with at uh you know the super fun site for the second film we're outside um in this really toxic creek and there's also really toxic um they're called chat piles which is basically just like piles of dirt that have lead and zinc in them um that get all over your clothes it gets on your shoes and all of that and so we just try to be cautious about when you get home like take off everything outside as much as you can and then like immediately like wash it um and don't bring your shoes in and just try not to track it in so yeah that was kind of I'm sure that there might be safer ways but I think that that is the approach that we took yeah I mean it, it, I mean it's a learning curve right like these aren't things that you discover as you go um yeah, let's talk about Meet Me at the Creek. I got to watch it. Um, I was really touched by Rick Jim, who is that film's hero. Um, will you tell us a bit about Tar Creek uh, and its history, um, about it being a super fun site? Yeah, Tar Creek is in northeastern Oklahoma. Um, it is currently on the Quapaw Nation land, but the water goes and flows beyond that. So really, it's like, all of northeastern Oklahoma's watershed is all connected and so if one creek or one place is polluted you can you can also consider some of the other places to be affected by it but I'm not exactly sure on all of the the years and the facts but I do know that that area was a huge mining operation um it provided all if not yeah almost all of the bullets for world war ii and that is like think about a lot of bullets that were being um, mined in that area um, from lead and so when the mines closed I believe it was in the 80s the water rushed the mines and brought up all of these toxic chemicals and into the into the creek and Rebecca remembers the day that the creek turned orange so she was there before it happened and and she saw the change in the environment and so it's just a huge environmental disaster, the largest Superfund site in the country. And, you know, the EPA and different organizations have tried to clean it up and do different things. But ultimately, it's just been a huge project and something that I think Rebecca is really hoping that multiple organizations can come together and develop a plan to tackle it like simultaneously rather than all these little projects happening over the course of many years to try and and clean up that space because whenever the water rushed the mines and brought up the the lead and the zinc and toxic chemicals, all of the fish died and there's no life there. Like you go and you don't, you don't really see anything. There's just nothing. And I've, I've seen like one dead fish. um, And then randomly one day we did see like a pack of otters, um, running up the creek and we just felt so sad for them because it's like you know it feels like they're running for their lives through this extremely toxic creek and who knows what kind of effect that's going to have on them but yeah I think talking about these issues is really sad and really daunting and um, can be extremely depressing and just kind of like you make it makes you feel helpless and that's how I feel a lot of the time is like how do we what what's the solution if like we can't come together and find like um, a solution to this problem. I just don't really know what we can do, but I guess what I can do within my power is to uplift Rebecca's work and her story and try to tell it in a way that has a positive spin on it um, and tries to make people feel um, some sort of emotion within them that'll help them um, care about either the place that they're in or the place that Rebecca is in. Right. Yeah, it is just, uh, I mean, the photos and also that a creek just turns orange because of the zinc and the lead is harrowing. And Rebecca, I mean, it's really incredible that she's fighting so hard. She's also called the Tar Creek Keeper, and she is the founder of the Local Environmental Action Demanded lead, for short. She also does these, I've read, these like toxic tours, which I thought was really interesting. Like she takes people on like mock fishing tournaments to show them like how unfishable the creek is. And, you know, that and it's really interesting work. But yeah, 13 tons of toxic waste have gone into that creek. And yeah, it affects a huge water source. Stylistically, it's quite different than than the third film. It's much more poetic. It's like Im- images of nature and water and people in love with each other and with their child. It's very beautiful. Why did you choose to present the story in this way yeah so 
I felt like restoring Neshkeiman was kind of a more of an educational approach. And with this film, I wanted to, I just wanted to try something different. I guess like go beyond um, what I had done previously and try to challenge myself. And I wanted to play around with like some abstract imagery and also think about how Rebecca's experience, her life and her story can play into this narrative of this issue that she's dealing with, but maybe not so directly. And so when I was sitting and talking with her and we're doing interviews, she kept bringing up the homelands. And so as Cherokee people, we were forcibly removed from our homelands in North Carolina to Indian Territory, which is now Northeastern Oklahoma. And we were, you know, she talks about this a little bit in the film, but just like imagining the grief and the loss that our people must have felt the moment that they walked away and they, you know, tried to find a place in Oklahoma and in Indian territory that it was just as close as they could to what their homelands were like. And it was really interesting whenever I started piecing the film together, she had been saying these things about the homelands and told me the story of the waterfall that's in the film where she's this what the waterfall is like hitting her face. And then she realizes that she's actually crying. Um, because she's feeling this longing for her homelands and she didn't realize that she would feel this way whenever she went back. And I was piecing all the things together and um, some of the footage that I had gotten actually looked like Cherokee, North Carolina. It's like really hilly and a lot of green and trees and things like that. And I was like, it all just kind of clicked for me that this is what needed to be in it because I that was never something that I set out to put into the film, but it was just telling me that that, connection to place as Cherokee people that we have to our homelands is something that we need to transfer over to this place and how um, her story just really touched me through and visually I was I was seeing it in my head when she was going back and having these feelings and, and at the waterfall and so I yeah I guess I just wanted to make it more of like a I don't know a poem kind of a film and so I worked with a composer who was amazing and helped like bring those little like vignettes to life where we shot on a, a Bolex film camera. And so it, we actually have like those little snippets in there where we're, it's kind of supposed to be like a, a place that doesn't really exist, you know, cause those people, like you're seeing like a couple and a family, they're not actually able to go to the Creek like that, like you see in the film. And so the composer was able to match like his music to be a little bit different and more kind of like magical realism feeling during those little portions of the film. And so, yeah, I don't really know. I think that the approach was more so trying to evoke a feeling. How can I bring out a feeling in other people to um, have sympathy, empathy for Rebecca and also know that this isn't just an indigenous this isn't just indigenous people's issues this is everybody's issue. Um, what affects us affects everyone in the long run. And she doesn't want this to happen to anybody else. Yeah, no. And I think that's definitely how it comes across. And it is really cool watching, you know, the, the, the two films next to each other and seeing like how so vastly different stories are coming down to like root themes and root things that are connected to each other and to very different ways of presenting information and story in an environmental discussion as well. And again, also affects everyone um, in and around that space. You know, this season of the podcast, it is just dedicated to conversations around climate change and filmmaking. And I know and believe that Indigenous voices and work should be really central to these conversations. And there are like a thousand questions that I could ask you about this. Mm -hmm. But I really just would like to know your perspective on um, Indigenous voices in the film and climate space today. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think it's been a challenge for, for us. I mean, I'm fairly new to the space in terms of, you know, only been doing making films since 2017. And I, I think in general in the film industry, it, you know, there's not a lot of space for us. I think, you know, there's been studies done that it's like less than 0.01% of like indigenous representation in, in media on like in, on TV and film. And it's like, okay, that's, that's a wild statistic. So basically just like not even there. Um, so at that, 
And like, like so no nuance as well. Like yeah. there are so many different tribes with so many different homelands and stories. And it's all what I've noticed very much, very often focus on like broad sweeps, which is frustrating. Yeah. And there's often like only room for one. Like well, at least the industry makes us think that. I don't believe that, obviously. Right. right. Um, that's true. The industry is making, that's true. That's also, a, everything is like frames uh, and things created by other people that can be recreated and changed. Mm-hmm. doesn't hold the truth. It's like, okay, we already have like this story. We already have a native story or we already have a boarding school story or whatever, like lined up on our docket. So we can't like support another indigenous story. And it's like, okay, maybe they have similar topics, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be other topics and themes explored and different um, histories. And, and I think that that is something that we struggle with in the industry is, yeah, having that nuance um, and having that space. But I think that in order for us to, you know, get around that, which we have like successfully been doing recently, um, I've been able to work on projects like Reservation Dogs and Killers of the Flower Moon. Like these films um, have been like, have transcended basically what they had expected um, them to perform. And people are I think starting to realize especially in the industry that there are interesting stories um, that don't have to just be the stereotypical western or historical stories that they think that indigenous people are and so um, in the climate space though I think that it is a little bit different and I think that there are a, a fair amount of indigenous voices that are trying to come out of that and I think that you know indigenous people are are probably the most impacted by environmental issues, um, especially I think in the global South and then, you know, in my communities as well. Um, It's just, that's just something that we're fighting for. And I think that's where the stories come from. And that's, we feel the urgency of it and we don't want to lose our land or our ways or our people. And so that's where those stories come from. It's more out of, it's more out of necessity rather than a want. Um, And so, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. There's a lot of people doing really great work. I think that, um, like, Neotero is one of the organizations that supported Meet Me at the Creek, and they support Indigenous storytelling globally. And I have um, amazing friends and allies there that support the good work. And um, it's organizations like that that I think that really just move Indigenous storytellers forward and, and telling the stories that they want to and need to in order to preserve who we are, but also to get our stories to, out to a broader audience. And you recently spoke at the Hollywood Climate Summit. Yeah. What was that experience like? Yeah, no, it's really funny. I actually was just with the founder. Her name's Allison uh, Beagleman, I think is how you say her last name, but she's one of the founders. And um, I really like I really like them. I think that they were really welcoming and super kind. And I invited Rebecca to come with me and participate in the panel conversation. Um, It was about intergenerational um, relationships, especially as it pertains to storytelling and in the environment. Um, So yeah, really complex like um, intersections there in that conversation. But ultimately I think that the Hollywood Climate Summit is trying to, to diversify what the industry looks like whenever we're whenever we're trying to tell stories in general, but also like climate stories as well. And what does that look like? And how, how do we try to um, implement things and scripts and, and movies that are like really small, but make a big impact. So um, for example, like making the conscious choice to like not have any water bottles in a film or just like, even in like, like minute writings, you know, they'll consult on different scripts and making sure that, they're, they're putting out a message that is geared more toward, that is just environmentally conscious. And so I think that that space was really interesting to be in. There was a lot of people there and a lot of conversations that were being had. And I think that it'll continue to grow and foster these connections. But um, I was really grateful that Rebecca and I had the opportunity to come and speak. And Rebecca, of course, like makes friends everywhere she goes. And Mimi Kennedy is an actress that was on the panel with us and she's really well known for, for different sitcoms um, and ended up like going out to visit Rebecca and help Rebecca do like a, a Tar Creek cleanup. Um, 
And so it was like really cool to see these relationships that were happening in that room um, extend far beyond Hollywood and, and these people like actually cared. And so that was like kind of uplifting and reassuring is like, it's not just a performative action for some people to come and speak on a panel. It's like, they actually mean, they mean this kind of work and they want to build those relationships and, and make time for it. Yeah. No, and I think that, that oh, that's fantastic to hear. And I think also that that was kind of going to be one of my questions about working on a film like Killers of a Flower Moon, like a larger set uh, with a large production with a lot of eyes, you know, big names attached. Um, there is so much nuance in that conversation about how stories are being told on a larger stage and like, are we compromising or are we not? Um, what was your experience like in that space um, as an Indigenous woman? Yeah. Um, so I've had a lot of time to think about this now, especially recently that the film has come out, but we, we were work, I mean, I was working on it two years ago and I was on the second unit. So basically, you know, they had two film units going at the same time and mine was this, the smaller unit, which was still like over a hundred people. And we weren't working with any of the main actors, but we were still shooting a lot of the scenes that you see in the film. And it was interesting because there were a lot of people that were flown in or brought in for the project. And a lot of the local people were more so like production assistants. And um, I think that there was a gap in misunderstanding that this type of a film, you can't just come into a community and expect it to be the same as it would be in Hollywood or LA or, or New York or anything like that. Because the background actors that we were working with are all our community members, they're elders, they're, um, tribal members that we see every day and so that was something that I think was a there was a misunderstanding there of like they're not just regular background actors we can't just treat them you know poorly we like we have to take care of these people and we're also like telling their story like this is yeah so there was a moment where I had to like kind of step with the, with the with the team I was working with and being like okay like let's be a little bit more mindful of how, how we're operating. Um, and then, you know, it, everyone was really receptive to it. Um, there was just some minor issues that were going on on set that we needed to address. And so um, it was really hard work. I will say that. And I was exhausted. I only worked for like a month on it, but it was like the hardest thing I'd ever done. And um, I'm really glad that I did. I think that the experience really opened my eyes and, and how brutal the film industry can be in terms of like, you know, it's not glamorous. It's extremely hard work, long hours and filming outside in Oklahoma during the summer. So it was like a hundred degrees every day. Um, and after the film has come out, you know, I've learned a lot about the collaboration that was done between Martin Scorsese and his production team and the Osage Nation. And I do think that he did um, a good job at incorporating Osage consultants and language and, you know, they had costume um, consultants on it as well, really speaking to the collaboration um, of that time and that history. So that is all like extremely accurate. Um, I think that it's challenging because the story, you know, is from Ernest Burkhardt's perspective and it'll never be from an indigenous person's perspective if Martin is telling it. And I think that that is maybe what gets lost in translation a little bit is the Osage characters feel a little bit one dimensional to me and maybe aren't as like nuanced as I would have liked to see um, as an indigenous person. But that's just like the, the consequence of, you know, who's telling the story, whose perspective is it from? And I think that that can intersect into climate as well when we're talking about, um, you know, when we want to tell these stories, like who, who's telling the story, who's directing it, who's, um, you know, how are they collaborating with indigenous communities if it is about, is it, if it is about an indigenous community and what does that look like? Um, because I think, like I mentioned before, you know, the documentary world can be extremely extractive and um, I think you know, I guess in same in the same sense as narrative, like we have to be able to collaborate with the communities that we're telling stories like with and about. Um, and hopefully, you know, I think that Killers of the Flower Moon was a good example of how to collaborate in that way. Um, and I hope that that can continue. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's also interesting when, when talking about like a film like that, a narrative, a big narrative that is, you know, going to, like you said, someone's land. 
And you're then, I think it's interesting, uh, this conversation about how to treat extras or background actors in terms of also just where you are and where you're from and who you're visiting when you're in the space. Like when I was in college, it became more more normalized to say like what, uh, land acknowledgement, you know, currently here, I live here and this is the land of. But if there is another side to that where it also this shouldn't become presentative, it should also be like, what is the other side of you actually giving back to the community that you're living in and of? And also in terms of climate, you know, how is this set treating like um, the literal, the land of where you Is there a lot of waste? Are they taking care of energy and how they're expending that? I think these are other things that um, I've been thinking a lot about when thinking about these big movies is maybe they're having a big conversation about climate or there is a big part about representation, but are we actually then producing something that is also in production, rep representing those? Uh, those values at the same time yeah it's a lot of um really intense like trains of thought that happen there um and i do know that um that killers of the flower moon had an environmental department i don't know in what capacity they were doing things i i really don't know like That's what great. that looked yeah. like but i do know <laughs> that they were tracking their right. environmental impact in some capacity so i do see like baby steps of things happening and, and us trying to be more conscious about, you know, how many water bottles are we having on set? Or, you know, what what is the impact that we're having on the land that we're filming on? And what does that look like? And so um, I know that this industry isn't very conscious of that and isn't like, it's just so quick and, you know, so fast moving that we don't really have time to be thinking. I think that this is how the industry thinks. We don't really have time to be thinking about how to make it more environmentally friendly because we just have to go quickly and time is money. But at the end, I think that we should really try to reframe that mindset into like time is money, yes, but the more time that we spend trying to be conscious about those decisions can actually make, can actually save us money in the long run and also, um, have a more positive impact on the production and on our community. And I do think that having that intention and care does make the story inherently better um, in ways that we may not understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like we were saying all the way at the beginning, like sometimes there are things that you just don't know how to place, but it just exists in the space. And I think the way that we create projects and who's involved, it might not, or how you're literally acting and where you're getting your water exactly, or if you turn your car on or off, it all adds to the energy of the space and the land that you're on in that moment. And I do think there are, I mean, especially throughout the creation of this season, there are really cool people that are really working hard at integrating climate into the way that we work so that, you know, we're not just telling climate stories that are not taking care of the climate just like we shouldn't tell indigenous stories without actually taking care of our indigenous peoples, you know? Yeah. I can't wait to listen to some of the other stories and other people <laughs> that you've interviewed. And I do want to share, you know, I worked on reservation dogs as a background casting director. And that one, that show is on Hulu. Now um, all three seasons are streaming. And as we're talking about the, you know, kind of a more like spiritual element to, filmmaking um, and just being conscious about our decisions on set I I do think that because the crew and the cast and the writers and the directors are all indigenous maybe not all the crew but like most of the key players are all indigenous on this production and I do think that the care that's being taken with that um, level of storytelling like for example in one of the houses um, on set on one of the main characters houses like all of our crew's family members were in the pictures and it's like what kind of care or what when does that ever happen on any other set like that where it's like all of the crew members all of our like loved ones things are like actually in this house and what really like truly reflects like what my family would be doing or what it looks like um how it looked like growing up and those types of things and I do think that that sort of um extra mile and intention that goes into the filmmaking process directly impacts the quality of the storytelling yeah. um and I think it you know specifically with my role as a background caster 
seems so simple, like just get people on set. But at the same time, it's like, these are elders in, our, in the community that I have to make sure like they probably, they don't know how to use like email and they don't <laughs> know how to like fill out paperwork and things like that. And so I have to like take the time and relationship build with them and make sure that they know exactly what is expected of them. And same thing goes for not just elders, but really just anyone in the community and making sure that they're comfortable and feel safe and make it to set okay. And I think that the things that we choose to tell stories about and the things that we make really do kind of carry this spirit in them or they are like a spirit that we're making. And I feel that with Meet Me at the Creek, especially, I'm just like, oh, it's a little little film that has its own little spirit. And I think that like, um, we are just the vessels of that. Like, I think that we live in this world of, of intelligence that's all connected and these ideas come to us and it's our responsibility to act on them. And so that these ideas will come into fruition and we just have to care for it. So yeah, just like intention and caring all around, like in everything that you do, um, I think is extremely important in this work. Film is an art form and it is made to be made with intention. And I think I'm in all the chaos of the world that also exists at the same time. That is like a really nice foothold and core, you know, function from is setting the intention with what the work that you're doing and trying to hold on to that in, in the chaos. Yeah, Man. definitely. Like getting to the root of why you're doing the work um, is really important, especially in the hard times, because there's definitely a lot of hard times in this and being an artist and you question yourself and you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I making myself like go through all these challenges? But having that like intention that you can really hold on to is extremely important, like in, in the dark days, you know, as you said. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question. What uh, What is something that you're looking forward to or ready to let go of? Is there anything that you're kind of transitioning uh, in this time? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, this film, Mimi at the Creek, was like my main goal this year to finish. Um, and so I was like, all I want to do is be happy this year and finish my film. And so I think that I've checked those two boxes. But I think as I'm tra transitioning, you know, Reservation Dogs is over now. I don't have like anything in the forefront that is just like guaranteed for me as a freelancer. I'm just really focused on um, transitioning more into narrative and I'm going to be writing a short film script and just dabbling in that kind of world, which I'm really excited about and just kind of excited to spend time with family and slow down a little bit. Um, my career is has a lot of travel involved um, I do a lot of like speaking engagements and screenings and things like that which I love um, but it can be exhausting in the long run and so I am just excited to slow down a little bit and, and reflect and try to get you know some of those ideas out on paper amazing well I hope that you can and thank you so much for this hour I'm really I'm really grateful yeah thank you so much I'm really excited um, to hear all the podcasts that you put out this season I've linked Lauren's past works in the episode notes, as well as information on the histories that we talked about. I've also linked Rebecca Jim's work at Tar Creek. Thank you, Lauren. I'm really grateful that you shared your journey with us and I'm touched by your work. And I'm happy to know you a little bit now. I can't wait to see how Meet Me at the Creek will continue to meet new audiences. We are halfway through season three. Let's go. How are you finding it? I'm super curious. So make sure to send us an email if you have any feedback or comments or even guest recommendations. Inherlenspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at inherlenspodcast. Make sure to hit follow and I'll see you next week again. Cheers. Bye. Bye.